the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There has been a long, steady drumbeat, drums sounding against any notion of the inclusion of Christ or Judeo-Christian ethics in the public square. Uh, Again, this notion that we've been making this slow shift from what had been the view, the vision of our founding fathers of creating a nation where there could be freedom of religion, which heretofore our founding fathers had not quite experienced in England, to an atmosphere today, uh, some 250, 300 years after our founding, that seems to be taking on a decidedly different atmosphere, that of freedom from religion. To get some insights on this, our special guest tonight as we lead off the program is Larry Towton. Larry is the founder and executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, an initiative dedicated to defending and promoting Christianity in the public square. He's also the author of a new book entitled The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief, newly published by Thomas Nelson and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as no doubt on Amazon. Amazon.com. And Larry, great to have you with us on the program tonight. Delight to be with you. Why, this is interesting as we sort of watch, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess in many respects it's sort of the proverbial uh, frog in the kettle effect that we're seeing here in America today, where slowly and ever surely there seems to be this march, this parade, at least in the public arena, uh, where we've moved from the notion, as I said earlier, of a nation that provides freedom of religion to those that are now trying to recraft our nation into one uh, that provides freedom from religion. Well, it's like so many other things in our our culture that are gradually being redefined as they are uh, amputated uh, from their Christian origin. That is to say, from the from the anchor <laughs> that that had once held fast uh, not just our our culture but our very vocabulary. So, for example, um, uh, tolerance is now understood to to mean. Um, diversity is meant to to uh, mean uh, uh, just the celebration of differences, no matter what they are. Suppose, uh, as opposed rather to um, uh, a traditional American view, which is born out of uh, out of Christianity, that we seek to overcome um, our differences uh, for the sake of a, a uh, of one cause. Um, and these are the kinds of things that are happening where we're redefining. Um, redefining the roles of men and women, all kinds of things. And as you have said, there is a there's a kind of slow leak, as I like to put it, of Christianity out of the culture. And in my book, The Great Effect, I'm trying to give a glimpse to readers through through a narrative, through a very compelling, very real story of, of my daughter, of what a culture looks like when it is completely 
lack of Christian influence. And of course, a lot of this is done with this notion, as those in the public square that are pushing this would try to promote, uh, that we don't want uh, any undue religious uh, in, uh, influence on anyone, that we're trying to create a society uh, of great tolerance here, and that the Christianity, for example, has a history of tremendous intolerance, and they will typically quote things like uh, the Salem witch trials of, of American history and folklore, um, and perhaps more history than folklore now that I think of it, but uh, from that perspective, as well as to things like, uh, you know, what happened with the Inquisitions in Europe, etc., etc., and and they use many of these events to try and argue this notion that Christianity in, in particular, and maybe its companion religion, Judaism, are, are vile, evil, oppressive religions, and they're just simply trying to create an atmosphere of greater tolerance. Well, uh, that is just a bunch of sheer nonsense. Um, the 20th century was an experiment in secularism, and it was a century that saw well north of 100 million people dead. Now, that is, that is more than all of the war, all previous centuries. Combined, that's not just the you know, quote unquote Christian offenses. That's the it was listed from Muslims and the and Hindus and and, uh, and Judy, all of it. None of them come even close to the horrors that we saw that were perpetrated secular regimes in the 20th century. Um, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't um, uh, the Jews who were uh, who were wiping out um, Germans. It was. Uh, uh, it was a, a fascist, a, a radically secularist uh, regime that was pushing these people into gas chambers and, um, you know, saw uh, globally about 50 million people dead. Um, this, this attempt um, at revisionist history uh, is something we all need to be very vigilant of um, because uh, quite clearly Christ commanded uh, that his message to be advanced with the sword. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the the poster boy for um, atheism these days, is a guy who makes these types of arguments. Well, as I, the point I've made to him is, you know, if I, if I kill you in the name of science, does that make me scientific? Well, of course not. Um, any more than somebody who says that they do something in the name of Christ. Christ himself predicted uh, in John chapter 16 that people would kill uh, in the name of God, uh, would do these kinds of things. We we know this, um, but we have to to discerning about this. And I and I will say this: even the radical secularists, you know, who are making these kinds of arguments that Christianity is dangerous, they are at least making some subtle distinctions, um, uh, whether they want to acknowledge them or not. Notice that they're saying these things mostly about Christians who are, as a rule, a tolerant people. Notice they're not saying them a, a whole lot about Muslims, uh, a, a people who are known to be quite intolerant of criticism of, of, of their beliefs. Christopher Hitchens, also a famed atheist, and I write about this in my book, The Grace Effect, he and I, uh, he's a friend of mine, somebody I've debated publicly, uh, and privately, we drove from his apartment in Washington, D.C., all the way to my home in Birmingham, Alabama. Along the way, we studied the Gospel of John. This was a follow-up to um, a challenge I'd made to him a couple of years before. 
I assure you, Christopher Hitchens does not get in the car with a Muslim in a bulky overcoat. Uh, you know, so he is making some distinctions, um, and uh, you know, uh, uh, about Christians, whether or not they want to acknowledge this publicly or not. We understand what the effect of grace is. Uh, we understand that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that none should perish but all have everlasting life. So we understand the effect of grace. But now let's talk about this from the perspective of your experience in uh, in traveling to the former Soviet Union, the Ukraine, to be specific, known. Uh, by many in that part of Eastern Europe and uh, the former Soviet Union is kind of the breadbasket of the Soviet Union and um, the efforts of your family to adopt a young Ukrainian orphan by the name of Sasha. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, I'll let me back up just a wee bit and, and say this. I think that we as Christians don't fully understand and appreciate grace. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. We speak of grace quite rightly as that thing which changes us, with, which transforms us in an instant when we repent of our sins and we receive Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what we mean when we speak of grace. But that's, that doesn't mark the outer boundaries of God's gracious activities. There's another form of grace that he gives, and it's, it's what we refer to as common grace. And, and common grace is that, that grace, you know, Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount that God sends his rain and the sun, you know, on the, on the just and the, and the wicked alike, you know, that his goodness overflows even to those who, who, um, who don't believe. What I'm calling the grace effect is a, a particular a kind of, of manifestation of common grace, meaning this, that it's a kind of grace that God gives to a culture only when there is a significant presence of his people in it. And so my argument in the book is this, you know, my wife and I, we travel to Ukraine, um, I think your your uh, listeners will find very compelling this story in in this book, The Grace Effect, and how um, we're uh, in this process, as you quite rightly mentioned, to to try to adopt Sasha. And I've been in that part of the world many times. I've been in Ukraine four or five times before this, Eastern Europe, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Poland, and so forth. So I was not unfamiliar with that part of the world. I was familiar with his business practices and the corruption, but I guess I was naive enough to believe that we wouldn't experience it to the degree that we experienced it when it involved the life of a child. Every single uh, official that we encountered, we had to bribe. And this, this begins to raise some interesting questions um, about why is it that they have such a disregard for the least of these, for the widowed, the orphaned, the sick, um, the elderly? Uh, is it because um, Americans are just innately better? Well, no. Uh, scripture would tell us that human nature is the same the world over. But the, the, the uh, public discourse in this country, indeed throughout the West, has been gentled by the grace effect, meaning by the presence of God's people, our society has been made a little more tolerable. And if we haven't been made good uh, by it, we've been made a little less evil than we might be. And the result is we, we do have a concern for our poor. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
And back to our conversation tonight. We are visiting with the founder and executive director of Fixed Point Foundation, Larry Towden, the book, The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. We've often heard this uh, false promise of socialism. We're kind of seeing some of this uh, play itself out, I think, uh, in the wake of what's been going on here in the United States in the last uh, couple of three years here. Uh, but, but Larry, certainly this was sort of uh, brought to perfection in countries like the, the former Soviet Union. We're seeing a lot of it, too, in Europe. Um, and this idea that, uh, as we said before, um, uh, instead of the government serving the people, the people serve the government. How does that, when we create... Create that that God neutral atmosphere, and suddenly people are there to serve the government instead of the other way around. And we have exercised God from the public square. How does that? What does that picture look like? Paint that picture for our listeners. Sure. Uh, it. It. I, let me give a concrete example of of what that looks like. Um, the kind of governments that appear in totalitarian regimes didn't happen by accident. They came about because uh, the people with the guns <laughs> were, were a people who had a different view of human life. And I want to be clear, most of them were people who believed very sincerely that their view was the correct view and that they were doing uh, uh, the world uh, a favor by doing what they did. People like Vladimir Lenin and Mao and Stalin and Paul Pot and, and so forth. Uh, and, and what it ultimately looks like is this. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, who was not himself a Christian, but who was unquestionably heavily influenced by, again, what I call the grace effect in my book, the grace effect, that is, by the presence of Christians. Uh, he, I mean, he had his own translation of the Bible, for heaven's sake, and, and required that it, that it be used uh, in his own teaching. Um, a guy like Jefferson is quoted as saying, it's better than that, that ten uh, guilty men should go free than that one innocent man should be uh, um, in prison for something that he didn't do. Now, contrast that with, with a view in, let's say, Russia, for example. A few years ago, well, now it's been 12 years ago, in 1999, there were bombings that were taking place there um, by Chechens. Uh, who were protesting the war in their part of the world and and, uh, and so conducting some terrorist acts in places like Moscow. Well, once they knew that it was somebody uh, from that region of the world who was conducting uh, these bombings, the Russian response was to arrest 11,000 people from that part of the world. Uh, the bombing stopped. But you see, they had, because they had no respect for individual life and liberty, they thought nothing of, of uh, taking that sort of action. So in contrast to, to Jefferson's view, here was a view that said it's better that, that, that 10,999 people who didn't do something should be arrested in order that we might catch the one who did. And all of this is born out of our view of humanity. And when you kick that block out, which is the foundation of Western culture as we know it, uh, what you're left with is, is, uh, is a world that's void of grace. You're left with a world that is, that is uh, uh, void of laws that have any anchor in the absolute. 
And so on what grounds do you protest your own government? All effective reform movements in the West have appealed to God. They've appealed to higher laws. The abolitionists did this. The reformers in Britain um, did this. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. did this. Uh, indeed, um, the founding fathers of this country did the same thing. But if you no longer acknowledge a higher power, to what court do you appeal when your government becomes a wicked and oppressive regime? Well, and as you point out in that example, it's the difference between revenge versus justice. Uh, Absolutely. Somebody commits a crime and they say, you know, we want to bring about justice. And so we're going to interview and research and investigate until uh, we're able to either ascertain exactly who the culpable parties are or kind of smoke them out, so to speak, or they're willing to come forward as opposed to, well, somebody has done something here that's wrong. And so in order to um, eke out not justice, but revenge, if nobody comes forward, that's OK. Shoot them all. I mean, Stalin, as oh. you point out, was was in for this kind of thing. Uh, there at one point was the notion that there had been uh, some, uh, well, I'll put it this way, there had been a lack of full commitment to some of the commands of the, the commander-in-chief, uh, Joseph Stalin, during World War II, and um, uh, there was kind of the feeling at the time that a couple of key battles, specifically some of the fighting for Stalingrad, had been lost because of it, and the answer to all of that uh, was not to try and bring those that did not follow his orders uh, to justice, but rather just kill everybody, which he did. And and he ended up wiping out thousands of key military leaders that many argue uh, was a significant setback uh, to Russia's ability to effectively defend itself against the Germans in the Second World War. Of course, uh, you and I know that the, the rebuttal to that would be to say this, oh, that's so unfair. That's just one madman. But no, it isn't just one madman. This is this is the result of an entire culture that comes off of the rails. And the result is, and my daughter, Sasha, having lived, um, or herself being the, the product of this kind of Soviet thinking, uh, I mean, Ukraine is, is, has been uh, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, what shall I say, the, the redheaded stepchild to, uh, uh, to, the, to Russia for centuries. Um, that the result was that that to put it even more flesh and blood terms is the complete degradation and the devaluing of human life. Let me use another example that was recently in the news. Perhaps your listeners are aware of this video that, that went viral on the Internet and made big news of a, a, a child in China where the cameras on the street caught images of a, of a toddler who wandered out into the road, was hit by a van. The van backed over the child, and then when they realized they'd hit a child, they drove off. Eighteen people, the cameras recorded 18 people who walked by and saw this child crying and the blood pooling around her. Another vehicle came along and whack, hit her again, and killed her. Now, that is a horrifying story, but it raises some interesting questions. Was this just a unique event in China? Well, we now have discovered that there are other reports coming from all over China that it isn't unique. And Americans, whether they're Christians or not, they hear a story like this, and they're horrified by it. But why are they horrified by it? They're horrified by it because whether they want to acknowledge it or not, they are deeply influenced by the Christian understanding of what human life is, and we don't treat it like roadkill. And so, to answer your, your, your question of, of a few minutes ago, 
what does a world look like when it is absent Christian influence? That's what it looks like. It looks like a place where the government doesn't care for people and people don't care for people. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. KFAX listeners are intimately aware and and uh, familiar with the story that Larry shared of what happened in uh, the, the south of China here about three weeks ago, if memory served me right. Uh, and as you'll know at the time, I, I articulated my absolute utter disbelief that someone would, would commit an action of hit and run like that. And clearly when you saw the video, you saw the, the, the van hit the child, roll over the child, the driver pause for a moment, think that I hit something, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, and then proceed on and roll over the child the second time. If that wasn't horrific enough in and of itself, that, as Larry points out, 18 passers-by over the course of about 12 minutes walked past that child as the blood was pooling below her and made no effort to do anything, summons anyone, contact authorities, absolutely nothing, which I think is a very apropos example of what the influence of atheistic communism does to the very soul of mankind. We'll pause on that point and come back with more. A look at the grace effect, how the power of one life can reverse the corruption of unbelief. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Larry Totten, my guest, author of The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. Your experiences of what you saw and witnessed during this process in the Ukraine, as we say, uh, this a nation under Soviet rule uh, pulled into and part of the Soviet Union uh, for many, many decades. They had suffered horribly during the Second World War, had been a very focused attack by the, uh, the Germans during the war. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of genocide that took place. Uh, there are killing fields, so to speak, even in the Ukraine because of what happened during that war. Um, and then, of course, here, a nation under the influence of, of atheistic communism for the better part of, of second seven decades. Tell us a bit about what you saw and the experience in the process um, of adopting Sasha from an orphanage and what you saw in Ukrainian culture juxtaposed against what we know of of Western culture that has the strong Judeo-Christian acknowledgement of God's existence, we'll call it, influence. Sure. Um, well, we live in a culture that right now, as I was listening to your program, you were talking quite rightly about how uh, uh, there is this effort to drive Christianity from the culture. And as I like to say, it's being treated increasingly like smoking. You know, it's, it's an unpleasant thing, and none of us want your secondhand religion, so why don't you go do it in the designated areas, but don't bring it into any of the public sphere. What I'm trying to say in the grace effect is this, and, and it's a wonderful life. George Bailey is given a, uh, a believes he doesn't bring much to the table. And he's given a glimpse by an angel of what his hometown of Bedford Falls would look like if he had never been born. It's not even called Bedford Falls. It's Pottersville, and it's a terrible place. Well, I'm arguing in the grace effect that, that America would be a Pottersville to the 10th power. If you remove the Christians from the culture, what you have is the kind of things that we experience, where human beings are, are not treated as having intrinsic value. 
Uh, my daughter, Sasha, had been abandoned at birth. She had been raised in three orphanages. Orphanages, by the way, that were all running off of atheistic principles. What do those look like? Well, those are principles that say that human beings don't have souls. We only need to address physical needs. Uh, and they, they scarcely address those. I mean, children weren't given um, a hot shower. She was given one bath a week. She wore the same clothes. Uh, she wasn't given toilet paper. Um, she had exposed nerves and damaged teeth. She was given no education. She's HIV positive. These were the kinds of things that were going on in the orphanage. And, and that's before I even get to the, the kinds of things like human trafficking. Um, the children, 30% of those who have... Uh, uh, special needs will be dead by the age of 18. 60% of the girls will become prostitutes. 30% of, uh, of the children will, will become uh, substance abusers. 10% will be dead. You know, these are, these are the, the kinds of things that happen in a culture when you begin with the wrong premise. You see, a worldview is it's like glasses through which you understand the world and your your view of God uh, of of His character um, or His existence and non-existence will determine how you view man, and that will in turn influence the kind of government that you create. And the kind of governments that they created saw human beings as temporal beings who were there to serve the eternal state. And this stands in, in stark contrast to a traditional Western view, which is based on a Christian worldview, by the way, that says that man is an eternal being, and the state is a temporal institution that is there to serve him. So we begin to see just how radically the absent, absence of Christian belief, it's, you knock over that domino and they just keep falling. And you really see then this juxtapose of the notion of government serving the people, which is uh, traditionally the, 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 the Christianized Western viewpoint of democracy, uh, such as what we have in, in countries like the United States or Canada, and then just the opposite, the, the 180 of that, where the people are there to serve the government. And, you know, that, that might just seem to be an easy flip. But there is something very profound about that, and we're going to have Larry articulate it at, at, at a deeper level exactly what is the impact of that. And I think it's important, and I'll say this just before we take a timeout, because I know we're a, lit, a bit late for the break here, but I think it's very important that we pay close attention to this, because we're in the middle of a big political cycle right now. We are facing uh, a scant year from uh, this month. Uh, one of the, perhaps the most pivotal elections that this nation has faced. And we're seeing slowly this shift taking place um, in the American psyche, in the American politic, uh, away from uh, the allowance of the influence of grace on our lives, uh, a, a, a pulling away from the transforming power of grace, as uh, Larry Towden articulates inside his new book, The Grace Effect. And instead of saying that we need to embrace the impact, the influence of the Judeo-Christian ethic uh, as the, the compass, the moral compass that drives our nation. Instead, we're moving towards more of an institutionalized atheism. We see 
this taking place in politics. We see the effect of it in the public schools. Uh, now it's getting to the place where, you know, you, if you're going to practice your religion, make sure that you do it quietly, privately, and behind closed doors so that nobody is aware of it. The notion of sort of banishing Christianity from American public life. What is the impact of all of that? What if we could just wave a magic wand and be done with the influence of the Judeo-Christian ethic from public life, what would the new public look like? Many of the lessons that Larry brought back from his experiences in the Ukraine, I think, are ones we need to take very careful note and consideration of. Let's talk a bit, Larry, about the experience your family had in the adoption of Sasha um, and the, the change about, uh, the turnabout, rather, that's taken place in her life. Uh, yes, uh, boy, I tell you, it's been huge. And uh, and I want to be clear that this book isn't, uh, you know, it's not Anne of Green Gables or Heidi or Christie or something like that. There's a much larger story and narrative that is, uh, that is being told here about uh, culture itself. But Sasha is a metaphor here. Um, for what what God can do to entire nations, and in her own life, she had uh, she had experienced uh, the the material, the spiritual, the the uh, emotional, uh, and intellectual deprivation that that comes in a society that is absent. The, what I call the grace effect. When that's not there, the kind of common graces that God gives through uh, the presence of Christian people, there is a there is a uh, a, a very uh, ugly side um, of life. And uh, here she was in circumstances like that. We bring her back um, to the states. Um, you know, it's it's a little uh, you know exciting for us to have observed in her. She's been with us for about two and a half years now, but to, to see her um, experience so many things for the first time—a um, warm, uh, a warm bed, her own bedroom, um, a hot shower every day—boy, she really runs up my hot water bill. <laughs> um, she enjoys those things. She enjoys um, having a father, a mother, um, brothers. These are things she gives thanks to God for every day. And they're the things that the typical American child, of course, would would um, take for granted, um, would have that opportunity to take for granted. Also seeing her get appropriate uh, medical attention. Um, imagine going around for years um, with exposed nerves um, in your teeth. Your teeth are as... Uh, as pediatrician said um, her teeth were bombed out. Um, she had to have uh, I think it was seven teeth pulled. Um, I, I believe that's correct. And, uh, you know, so seeing this kind of transformation and then watching Sasha step from a culture where human life was not deemed to be as valuable and where there wasn't appropriate care for the orphans. Uh, into a culture where it, there is still a, a residual of this kind of grace of which I speak uh, is rather extraordinary. And, you know, and for her to, to, to uh, step from a world that the radical um, secularists would give us, the grace effect is giving you a picture of what that world would look like. And I don't mean, by the way, that they are aware of it. They're very well-intentioned. They think that they can maintain the kind of culture that we currently have um, and still, you know, get rid of God. But it's like cutting off the limb uh, on which you sit. It just simply cannot be done. So uh, I think Sasha's life trumps any argument 
that anyone can make against the power of God's grace to transform a life. Larry, we appreciate uh, you joining us tonight to tackle this topic that, quite frankly, an hour doesn't even begin to to do it justice, Uh, at least to give the listeners a glimpse of obviously the reality of what we're facing in our country today, but but what the end result can be if if good men fail to do anything, if good men do nothing, if we do not prevail uh, in standing firm for our faith, not just for the preservation of our rights as people of faith in our country and the ability to exercise freedom of religion, First Amendment, blah, 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 but for the literal preservation of the nation and what this country has stood for, for both ourselves and for the world. The book, again, is called The Grace Effect, How the Power of One Life Can Reverse the Corruption of Unbelief. The book, as I mentioned earlier, is published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Larry's website at graceeffect.com. That's graceeffect.com. And again, our thanks to uh, Larry Towton for being with us. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As much as money is so much a part of the topic of what's going on in the world and in our nation, it even filters down to our own personal lives. And, you know, ironically, when we think about it in in Western culture and in American society, I think um, in specific, um, we have a lot of ideas about money and the connection to money and masculinity and what that means. A lot of men, I think, feel as if they have been emasculated. Since uh, fall of 2008, when we saw the implosion of Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers et al., to see people who have lost their jobs, they've lost life savings, they've lost retirement dollars, they've lost their homes. Many of the things that particularly we as men, as the breadwinners of the family, tie into what we consider to be marks of success and what it means to be a man. And yet, as my next guest will suggest, um, the true meaning of what it is to be a man uh, is not measured by economic success, particularly when we look at this from a biblical or Christian worldview. He is Richard Simmons, author of The True Measure of a Man. He also serves as director of the Center for Executive Leadership, a Christian-based community resource, and joins us now by phone. And Richard, good afternoon and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Craig. Thank you. This has got to be a tough topic, and certainly men listening to our conversation here tonight who have lost jobs, seen their livelihood and their identity in many cases go down the drain because of that, watch their fortunes erode away because of what's transpired on Wall Street, up to and including, in some cases, the loss of the very roof over their heads. The, the blow that that must mean to a man and his sense of of, of self-worth and self-esteem must be horrific. Yeah, it is. And uh, what most men don't realize is the driving force in their lives, even Christian men, that so many of us, when it gets right down to it, get our sense of worth and identity um, and significance based on how well we perform out in the worst workplace. That's where we get, uh, I guess you could say that's how we define ourselves. And so when we run into uh, economic uh, calamity, economic problems, it can be devastating. And, you know, I, I think, to be fair, a lot of us guys, and I think myself included, if, if somebody stops me on the street or I'm, I'm talking to an acquaintance that I hasn't seen in, in many, many years, somebody might ask you casually, so, so what do you do for a living? And, and we're inclined, at least I know I am, I'm more inclined to, to tell you who I am 
as opposed to what I do. In other words, I will probably say, well, I'm a radio broadcaster, I I host a talk show, things of this sort, um, as opposed to speaking about specifically the details of the job. Uh, Is part of that uniquely a a Western or, more specifically, American ideal? And if we wrap our identities and, to a degree, our sense of self-worth and value uh, into our livelihood and our ability to earn money and how successful we are at same, and then all of a sudden the carpet, through no fault of our own, is ripped out from underneath us. What does that do to a man at every level, not only economically, emotionally, but even spiritually? Well, what most men don't realize is that life for them is all about what I do as far as you know my, my, my work uh, and how successful I am at what I do which then makes me wonder, what do you think about what I do? How do you rate what I do? Which then <clears throat> leads to what I think is the, the great fear that most men struggle with, even though sometimes they're not aware of it, is what if I fail at what I do? Uh, that failure, the fear of failure, is like a psychological death for most, most men. Um, what I'm finding is that men, in many instances, are not driven to succeed they are driven not to fail. And this, this creates all kind of dysfunction in their lives. It cascades into so many areas, uh, including depression. Um, and it's, uh, it's a real problem that men are just kind of coming to grips with, and it creates all kind of pain in their lives. And they don't want to tell anybody about it. Uh, we have this idea that, that if, if I'm experiencing pain, if I'm struggling, I am betraying my male identity. And we just want to hold it in and not tell anybody. Well, let's face it. I mean, this is part of what we do. We put, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, some do, uh, into their livelihood. They're the breadwinners. They, the man is, uh, you know, providing that, uh, that covering over the household. Uh, the economic aspect of protection, I think, is is high on the agenda. We want to make sure that our families are well cared for, that they enjoy, you know, the finer things in life, that the kids can grow up with good education, someday send our daughters off to be married with a nice wedding, all of the entrapments that are tied into our ability to earn. So then when suddenly that has taken away from us, or we're suddenly faced by this overwhelming fear of failure, uh, what does that do? How does that impact our relationships with, with family, with spouses, and with the Lord? That is a great question. Um, what most people don't realize is that, you know, we have two basic psychological needs, and I explore this in the book. Women have a, primarily a psychological, we both have it, but women have more of a psychological need for security. Men, on the other hand, have a much greater need for significance, that my life matters, that my life uh, uh, is worth something, and therefore, uh, I've, I've seen this when I meet with couples who may have to sell their house. The wife is glad to do it because it makes her feel better about their financial situation, but for a man, it goes much deeper because his significance is threatened, his manhood is threatened, and it can just devastate him. And then it impacts the relationship in the marriage, his relationship with his children, and he, he spends so much of his time um, uh, in silence, carrying a lot of pain around. It's like that old song by Simon and Garfunkel, I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. And that's what most men think that they're supposed to be today, and it creates all kind of problems in their home. And so much of this, of course, uh, Richard, as you suggest inside the pages of the book, goes to the heart of what have essentially been false ideas about what it means to be successful. Talk to us a bit about that. 
that that is a huge issue, and um, you know the second half of the book is uh, focuses on how to help men be set free from this, and what you just uh, uh, mentioned is, is is a major part of this. Uh, Blaise Pascal said the reason that we struggle with life so much is because we have false ideas about reality. And men in, in the modern world particularly struggle with this. We have false ideas about what is true masculinity. We have false ideas about what does it really mean to be successful in life. And we have false ideas about what is true wealth. What does it mean to really be wealthy? And so what men don't realize is how important it is to get um, our lives in harmony with what is true. Because as Jesus himself said, it's the truth that will set you free. And this, is, to me, is so important to be set free from what I call this success trap that we get so caught up in. Talk to us a bit about, then, what men need to do to, re, to recalibrate their thinking, so to speak. I mean, a lot of us, we, we not only have had this pounded into our heads since childhood, you've got to get a job, you've got to get educated, you've got to go get a career, and we measure success based on, you know, how much money is in the bank and the size and the quality of the vacations that we take, all of these yardsticks, so to speak, that all comes down to finances and money, um, and we end up, I think, as you're suggesting, is spending an awful lot of time pursuing an awful lo- a lot of lies. That's, that's correct. And, um, Craig, there are a number of things that I, I could say to you. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to recognize that this is true of my life because at the heart of wisdom is just understanding yourself, understanding what makes you tick. Um, second uh, is uh, what I just we talked about, understanding the lies of, of life that we've bought into. Uh, I talk at length about, you know, what is the object of life? If the object of life is to be wealthy and prosperous and comfortable, then economic misfortune or failure is going to devastate you. But if the object of life is the transformation of my character, the maturing of my soul, and knowing God personally, then the storms of life, the economic storms of life, can be a blessing based on the way I respond to it. But probably the most important thing, and I talk about, you know, focusing on the legacy that we leave behind, how that will impact us. But the most important thing is, is realizing this, that I get my sense of worth and value based on what other people really think about me. You know, if I perform well, then people think well of me. I win their approval. And so I spend so much of my time um, seeking to please them because that's the most important people in my life. That's the audience I'm trying to please. And my challenge to men is, what do you think would happen if Jesus is the most important person in your life, if that's where you get your sense of worth and value, because Jesus loves you, not based on your performance, but on who you are. You're of such great value to him because we're created in his image, and as believers, we're his children. And therefore, we have great value. It's like that verse in Ephesians 2.10 that says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The word workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, which means work of art. We are God's masterpiece. We are of great value to him. And if a man can really get that into his life, it will change him radically. What's the starting point? Uh, obviously, I think a lot of self-introspection. I mean, a lot of guys, when they go through challenges, they're facing uh, the sp- prospect of, of losing a lot. They're overwhelmed to a great degree by, by fear. I think oftentimes we 
we then operate or function out of a sense of panic and not really reality based. And guys are saying, "Well, it's time to you know brush up the resume, Richard, and <laughs> you know get ready to start all over again." Do we need to maybe get reevaluated not as we prep for the next big interview with the potential employer, but rather to, to then look at it as you're suggesting? From what are the kind of questions? Not that the 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 prospective employer would be asking me across from the table, but what are the kind of questions that God would be asking me? Yeah, I, I think the, the the starting place is, uh, and you kind of uh, hinted at it, is we, we have to reorient our thinking and our approach to life and our approach to work. You know, it, it's it, it's not so much um, uh, how much money I make. It's, you know, what is God calling me to do with the rest of my life? Uh, you know, that's why I think if a man really starts thinking about his legacy, um, you know, when his life is over, what will his life have been all about? And as when you begin to think in those terms, you don't get so caught up in, uh, you know, the amount of money you make. You really want to seek to, to uh, do work and, and, I guess you could say, do with your life what will have the greatest impact on others and what will advance the kingdom of God. Ultimately, the true measure of a man not being based on the size of your uh, portfolio, your bank account, the size of the home that you live in, but but rather ultimately on the measure of your relationship before God. Richard Simmons, the author of The True Measure of a Man. Information, by the way, on the book, either through Amazon.com or through Richard's website at thetruemeasureofaman.com. That's thetruemeasureofaman.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.